This evening, we'll be considering together Habakkuk, or Habakkuk, chapter 2, verses 6 through 20. Before we turn there, let's pray and call upon our God. O oh, Father, again we ask that you who have spoken to us in your Son in these last days would reveal your Son in the prophets and the expectations of the Old Covenant. May we behold and witness in your judgments the excellence of Christ's perfect righteousness and lean our entire soul exclusively upon him in faith. Draw near to us, we pray. Meet with us in your word, we ask in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 6 through 20, page 786 in the Bibles that are in the pews. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. For how long? And loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise? And those awake who will make you tremble. Then you will be spoiled for them. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that people labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you, and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies? For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. This is God's holy word. The flag of the state of Virginia, some of you may know, shows a woman holding a spear and standing with her foot on a fallen man. His crown is off to the side, and underneath the motto reads, Six Semper Tyrannis. Thus, be it ever to tyrants. And that could be a very fitting heading for the words that we have read, because the living God will not permit the righteous rule of King Jesus to be usurped. But this is what Babylon really seeks to do. This is Habakkuk's second complaint we are in now. Maybe you remember the first. Lord, how can you not deal with the unrighteousness of your people? And then the Lord says, he he promises he's going to send a much more wicked nation to deal with his people. And now Habakkuk's complaint is, God, how can you be righteous if you use more wicked people to correct the wickedness of your people? Won't you judge them also? 
How can you be righteous? We've already looked at part of the answer to this, but now we come really to the conclusion of God's second answer to the prophet. And I want you to notice this in two parts, and we'll dwell principally on the first. But notice that God's righteous judgment will fall on Babylon and on all who are unrighteous. Now, we read these things. If we took a little more time to dwell on them, I trust we would be appropriately terrified. These are frightening words. But with the terror, there is also a real sense of utter scorn. It's as if there are indications of grief, but we're really watching a mock funeral. You hear the dirge music, and the eulogy is a shocking taunt of this person. This is not the kind of funeral you want for yourself. We remember him. We're so glad he's gone now. Or in the words of our generation, perhaps, some of you young people will resonate with this, too bad, so sad. This is divine mockery, and it's the height of infamy, really, to be mocked by God himself. Now, us parents who consider ourselves to be good parents, we teach our children not to mock one another. This is something that isn't uh, school-ground sort of behavior. So what is it that calls for God's mockery, and justly so? The answer is plainly stated for us in chapter 2, verse 4. Let's go back there for a moment. Behold, his soul, that is Babylon's soul, is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Now, here we have Babylon, the cup of judgment in the hand of the Lord, puffed up with pride in their position, refusing to humble themselves before the living God, bowing down to their strength, their wealth, their imagined gods, but not to the true God, and they've bought in to the age-old falsehoods. Might makes right. We're beyond accountability, too big to fail. But Babylon has set themselves up as the very pinnacle of unrighteousness and utter opposition to the God in whom we live and move and have our being. And this really is not just a message for Babylon. This is what all do who trust in themselves, including, quite apparently, even from the early part of Habakkuk, Israel itself, trusting in their own righteousness, looking to their own strength, puffed up with pride. That's the pinnacle of unrighteousness. When the law, chapter 1, verse 4, is paralyzed and justice doesn't go forth, the wicked surrounding the righteous and justice going forth, or not going forth at all, except as a perversion. Really what Habakkuk is saying is the very thing that the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 3. There is none righteous. No, not even one. Not the prophet. Not you, not me. There is no one who can satisfy God with a perfect life or by our strength accomplish what he demands, by our intellect access the heights of God. And everyone who makes the attempt and holds on to human reasoning, human strength, human righteousness is just as wicked as Babylon and under the same tyranny, however moral they appear outwardly. And we can see this because going a little bit further, if we had the time, we could notice from Jeremiah 22 some very significant connections. Jeremiah 22, verses 13 through 17, connections with the passage that we've just read. Many of the same terms of cursing that God places in these woes on Babylon, he has already declared 
to King Jehoiakim of Judah. You see, the Lord is not just going to send judgment on those other wicked people who come against his church, but on everyone who shares in the same pride or oppression or apparent outward morality built on human strength and righteousness. You see, Satan really has crept into the church in this way. And though uh, it would appear to us at first glance Judah is being assaulted by a more wicked nation, it really seems that what Jehoiakim was wishing was that he could be Babylon. He wished he could have everything that Babylon gets for himself. This is what he's after. Judah has been conquered, not by Babylon in the first case, but by their wickedness and self-righteousness. Well, if God permits us to continue in our sin, we're going to get what we wish for. Jehoiakim would get what he wished for. And that is ultimately not salvation, but destruction. Trust in yourself. Trust in your righteousness. You and I are under the same wicked subjugation that Babylon brings upon the nations because there is only one who is good. This needs to be said again and again to us. Who is good? But the God-man, Jesus Christ. He is the only way to life, the only way to escape God's righteous sentence. He, by faith in him, is the only salvation of our life. Nothing you do, nothing I do, or have ever done or could possibly do, not saints, not rituals, not job reviews, not report cards, not likes on social media, will help us. The just shall live by his faith. Righteousness, the righteousness that God demands, is only and exclusively God's gift by faith. And it is with that gift that God gives life so that we escape his judgment. That faith that God demands is in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he has, he says in Acts 17.31, fixed a day on which Jesus Christ will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has appointed And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, judgment coming upon the world. And notice what King Jesus, into whose hands the Father has entrusted all judgment, does here. He puts the woes and the cursing into the mouth of the nations. So that everyone is saying, Woe to the one who trusts in himself. Woe to the one who has the pride of Babylon. There's really something deeply ironic about here that people who are outside of the covenant of God's promise, strangers to God, would even be able to recognize this, the folly of trusting in our own strength. We read in Revelation that many would cry and weep over the fall of Babylon, not just a city and a nation, but a kind of a type of all that is in opposition to God. But this is what God's people do. Isaiah 37, 22. The Lord speaks concerning Assyria. She despises you. She scorns you, the virgin daughter of Zion. She wags her head behind you, the daughter of Jerusalem. Whom have you mocked and reviled? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes to the heights? Against the Holy One of Israel. This is exactly what Babylon has done. This is what the system of the world resting on human strength and righteousness does, it exalts itself against the knowledge of God. In so doing, it mocks 
the God who alone gives righteousness. And what then is the outcome? Whoa, whoa, we'll grieve for you, but it's just crocodile tears. And so Babylon is made into a sort of a proverb in the mouth of the nations. We read this in verse 6. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles? Babylon is insatiable, collecting for himself all sorts of peoples, building empire, glorifying themselves in the world. But King Jesus here puts these statements of woe in the mouths of the world. Proverbs, morality lessons, if you like. Just imagine the mothers rocking their infant babies like Catherine is doing back here. Woe to Babylon. Woe to Babylon. Woe to those who find their strength in themselves. This mockery is entirely appropriate. Now, at this point, we might feel a little bit like, again, this isn't, this isn't how we want to teach our kids, right? Why is this appropriate? Why is this even good? In fact, I dare say we should mock our own sins. Why is this good? Because it exalts God in his glory and his righteousness and it humbles man. Brings us to see our true estate that we are by God's law, righteously under his just condemnation and sentence. In fact, when the righteous see the destruction of the wicked, this is what we read in Psalm 52, the righteous shall see and fear and shall laugh at him. It's not what you're expecting, right? But here we are, laughing. See the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. These proverbial statements, these woes, if you like, really reveal the evil of prideful unbelief. How rotten it really is when we rest in our own strength. Oh, we we tend to think, well, you know, I got a little off track there. I just forgot to pray. My friends, woe to that, to that attitude, to that heart that says, I don't need the God of uh, the God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I don't need to rest on him. I can do something a little bit myself. Woe to that. I hope you can see here very clearly spelled out the wickedness of our own hearts in turning away from Jesus. And here we should develop a severe anaphylactic allergy. No, let me not ever turn away from him who has been judged in my place. We in our evil mocked and shamed him, but we must look upon him who we have pierced. And so God brings here through Christ, his righteous judge and king, the law of just retribution, an eye for an eye, and he deals with the pride of men. I want you to see what God will do. And I'm going to phrase these woes, if you like, in the kind of sardonic spirit in which they're written. You might even just hear behind this, if you like, a little bit, the kind of booing and hissing toward Babylon that really is justly deserved for their evil, for their wickedness and violence and all the the unrighteousness they've done. Here's how I'll phrase them. I'll start each of these with a ha. How do you like that? Okay, verses 6 through 8. Ha! Your construction is going to cost you. Verses 6 through 8, we see Babylon, as it were, a little bit like a loan shark. They're putting other nations under demand, heavy tribute that they can't pay. When they can't pay, they exact impossible interest and then give serious trouble when they don't. Business is pretty good. Babylon is pretty comfortable. They're living the easy life, heaping things up for their own consumption. Lots of pledges have been given Many nations in debt, but this is what the prophet is saying, what the Lord is revealing. Those obligations turn right back around. It's really Babylon that is in a moral debt 
to others, and someone someday is going to make them pay. How long? Well, your debtors are suddenly going to arise. God is determined to do this and to bring Babylon down. Here's bullying Babylon, thinking others are in debt, but she is the indebted one, harming others. Now, this word pledges in the ESV is a, a sort of a double, maybe even triple entendre. Debts would be recorded on clay tablets. The word actually means either pledges or clay. And more than this, clay is what you would use as a sort of standard building material in Babylon. Here they are, gouging others to build their little kingdom, funding construction with stolen goods, and it's going to cost them. You consume for yourself, you build yourself up, well, just wait for the man who trusts in his abundance. Watch what happens to him. More than this, Calvin says... What they accumulate is just like a worthless gob of clay. Indeed, this is really true. It's all pointless. As it says in Proverbs 28, whoever multiplies his wealth by interest and profit gathers it for him who is generous to the, to the poor. So Babylon is going to pay. And I want you to see as we progress through these, there is, there, this is really a startlingly poetic and powerful passage, which I won't fully develop. But I want you to notice that there is progression. We go from construction to verses 9 through 11. Ha! Your fortifications are going to fall. What of him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high to be safe from the reach of harm? Here's Babylon's desire. Consume, be puffed up, and it leads to something that doesn't come out directly in the ESV, but is there, to an intense coveting. They're longing to fill themselves up. And that leads them to do all manner of evil things, gaining for themselves in evil ways, cutting off peoples for their own appetites. They are doing all this. Their covetousness is directed to one main end, to protect themselves, to be secure and at rest. Now, that sounds pretty good, doesn't it, to be secure? Know that, know that your retirement account isn't going to fluctuate at least downward, Right. We'd all like a little security in our life, have an enduring home, and Babylon is looking for an enduring dynasty. But we must beware, because covetousness and the selfish selfish desire for security are sure to fall under the judgment of God. Notice what's really happening here. Babylon is attempting to build a fort, or dare I say a tower. Does this sound familiar? That will not ever fall to the ground. Remember the tower of Genesis 11. The Babylonians certainly hadn't forgotten it. This, listen to what it says was the rationale for building the tower of Babel. Then they said, Genesis 11:4, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. What do they want? What are they looking for? A legacy and a name that will never fall down. This is the real ambition of the kings of Babylon. To raise up the tower to have a great name. Secure. A lasting heritage. The thirst that men have for a place in this world and for safety and security usually comes from the same place. And I want you to listen very carefully to what the Bible says about covetousness. We tend to put this at the last of the commandments and, you know, that's that's kind of down the list. It's just so far down the list that as long as I didn't get past the seventh or that maybe the eighth, I'm okay. But com- commandment number 10, thou shalt not covet. Listen to what Paul says in Colossians 3, 5. Put to death, 
Therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is what? Which is idolatry. If we listen to the siren sound of the world, come on, come to peace, come to enjoyment, come to rest, then, my friends, we are actually giving way to idolatry if we rest in what the world promises. And this is what the Lord says to that, calling out his woe. Look at this foolishness. The very structure of your house is going to cry out and witness against you. The stone from the wall, the beam from the woodwork. Babylon seemed utterly impossible to destroy. They rose up in just a few years. They were a total juggernaut, trampling everyone else. And yet no one is beyond the reach of God's mighty arm. No one, no matter how firm and strong your security is, we live in a world where kings and presidents and even ordinary folks like us thirst for more, for safety, for an enduring name. And the only kingdom that's going to stand and the only name that's going to endure is that of Jesus Christ. We can try to gain the world, but we will lose our soul. Verses 12 through 14, the next woe, the middle woe. Ha! Your work is wasted. Notice we go from first sort of preparations for construction to fortifications, then to a town and a city, a civilization. We live in a day when many people bemoan the potential or possible impending fall of Western civilization. We're made for a city. We're made for civilization. We're made for that city of God coming down out of heaven. But here's Babylon trying to build a city, building a city with blood, with the spoils of their bloody warfare. Their iniquity is growing full. Again, notice the progression here. In the ancient Near East, a successful kingdom and a successful king, after conquering his enemies, building up a city, builds at the center of the city. Kind of the the pinnacle or climactic event is to build what is called a ziggurat. Now, that's not really a familiar term for many of us. Think of like a pyramid with steps, and you'll get it. A pyramid <clears throat> with steps. And Babylon had one. And that was the place where that was really the center of the religious worship. And we'll get to the idols in a little bit that would have been in that place. But I want you to notice that the structure of these curses and these woes follow the same sort of pattern of a step-like tower, if you like. We build up to the middle and you can even see that there's a kind of a pattern on the outside. Those who were in the Psalms class with the adults will remember the chiastic structure. Look at uh, the first, uh, sorry, the second and the fourth woe. Uh, notice what it says in verse 10. You have devised shame for your house. Or again, verse 16, the fourth woe. You have your fill of shame instead of glory. Right between these, kind of sandwiched in the middle, is this particular woe. And this is what it is. You build... You construct your tower, nothing. (laughs) Nothing at all. It's all going to burn. The nations are laboring to build their towers and their civilizations in vain. And this is from the Lord of hosts. It doesn't look like it at first sight. When we look at empire building and self-advancement and armies amassing on the borders of other countries in this day, We look at these things and we think to ourselves, what will become of us? What does the prophet say will become of it? 
It's all vain. It's all empty. God has determined that nations and empires would labor for nothing as long as they do not labor for his kingdom. This is replayed again and again and again in history. Think of Alexander the Great. Conquers the entire known world, dies young, and immediately his empire falls apart. Think of Hitler. What a terrible sort of villain he was in World War II, attempting to take over the world, quite successful, and he ends his life in an ignominious suicide. This is the end of all kingdom building, all prideful self-righteousness and trusting in the strength of men and not in God's Son. Every effort for glory and security, wealth, righteousness, wisdom of men is doomed to emptiness, to vanity, and to destruction. But Habakkuk says one thing will endure. The pinnacle thing, the climactic thing, that which must endure, verse 14, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. One commentator says, resistance is futile. That's the definite purpose and plan of God. Yes, subjugate his enemies, but declare his glories in the nations and cause them to be known. Like the waters covering the sea, a flood, a flood of glory filling the earth, demonstrating the righteous judgments of God. And what a promise this is. Think of the Old Testament and how God revealed his glory there in the tabernacle or the temple, filling the tabernacle or the temple with such glory that the priests couldn't even enter in. But now God says it will be the whole earth. This is his grand design, that the earth will be his temple, entirely filled up with him, and even now that inexorable promise is coming to pass because he is doing this in his people. Notice what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3, praying for God's people, that we would have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. In the church, the knowledge of the glory of God is already seen. We're not on the world stage, we might think to ourselves. People aren't writing headlines about our exploits and our intended conquests. Do you see how much God brings down the glory of men to set his glory in a humble people who depend not on themselves, their military equipment, their powers, their righteousness, but on his son. Really, if we could just envision this for a moment. How small and how pathetic are the ambitions of the kingdoms of this world when the God who made all things, has purposed and will certainly bring to pass the full knowledge of his glory. Aren't you glad God has put these woes in here? The puny ambitions of men deserve to fall before such righteous glory and the judgment of God's Son. Verses 15 through 17, the fourth woe. Ha! Your celebration is going to be your embarrassment. Now, I want you to notice here that is speaking of making the neighbors of Babylon to drink and be drunk. And I want to be clear that Scripture speaks of drunkenness as a very wicked sin, even, yes, in Wisconsin. It says 
Drunkards will not inherit the kingdom of God. This is a sin. If we're in it, we have to get out of it. And by God's grace, and through the judgment given to his son, we can. But I want you to see here this metaphor of Babylon passing around the cup, a sort of celebratory cup. Let's all celebrate. Look at this tower we built for ourselves. But there's wrath mingled in this. And the whole purpose is to get people to expose themselves. Think of Noah who becomes drunk. He exposes himself. He's ashamed. This is what Babylon seeks from their neighbors. Not neighbor love, but really come drink and I'm going to laugh at you. But God is the one who's laughing. This sort of debauchery of Noah and the debauchery of Babylon is what really actually took place sometimes in the Babylonian court, even forcing people to the point of drunkenness in order to shame them. But it's a tiny window into all the evils of Babylon and their wicked and violent ways. They were the cup of judgment in the hand of the Lord, but they would drink that same judgment. Drink, the Lord says. Show your uncircumcision. Here you are enjoying, delighting in all your luxuries. Wine is a symbol of these sorts of things. Delight in this, sure, but... Just know you will be uncovering the reality that you don't bear the marks of God's children, that you don't bear the marks of the Lord Jesus Christ and his covenant signed to you. You're a stranger. You're the outcast. You're the one who deserves shame and mockery. You will be mocked. And this is exactly what happens. Think of Daniel. The holy things of God are carried out of the temple, taken away to Babylon. It seems that Babylon's house is secure. The city is strong. There's reason to celebrate. Belshazzar, the king, brings the items that were in the temple out. And we read, they brought the golden vessels that have been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives, his concubines, drank from them. They took what was sacred unto God and to his worship. And we read in the next verse after that, that they praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone, mocking the God who had given these vessels to his people for their worship. And the irony here is that all this happens while Persia is threatening on Belshazzar's doorstep. And that very night, in fact, he's going to fall. It doesn't look like Marduk, the god of the Babylonians, is doing very much to help. But here we are in a last act of defiance, a sort of fit of frenzy, an orgy to mock God at the last. Surely he's going to fall. And immediately, the fingers of a hand stretch out and write on the plaster on the wall the doom of Belshazzar. The cup comes around from the hand of the Lord. It's not karma. It's a personal being, God himself, who brings utter shame upon those who mock him. And so Belshazzar is not only ashamed, he is killed, the kingdom is given to another, and the cup of God's wrath will be given to all those who exalt themselves against the knowledge of the true and living God. Verses 18 through 20. Ha! Your idol is helpless. What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies, we read in verse 18. Here we have the picture of the climactic event. We could say maybe that one most precious treasure in all of Babylon, maybe even up to 10 feet high, this large emblem of what they worship, a golden idol. And, of course, we read in another place of Nebuchadnezzar setting up a very large god for worship. There it is, ensconced in the ziggurat, housed in that place of security. 
Very impressive in the life of a nation. And we can just perhaps think for a moment about the sorts of rituals that would be associated with this, with the inauguration of this constructed, this man-made idol. They would splash wine on the mouth of the idol to open its mouth. Now it can speak. And then the people are learning at the feet of the priests who are instructed in the will of the God and who have already said to this idol, Arise! Awake! Teach! What folly! Here are your gods to go before you. But there's no breath in them. They're no better than dead. There's a triple pun involved here, but maybe one translation puts it the best. The idol is just a dumb or a mute dummy. Now, it's pretty easy to mock gods of wood and stone. But I like what O.P. Robertson says about this. Modern people and their sophistications may regard themselves free from the obvious folly of idolatry. What educated, self-respecting person would be deluded into expecting special powers to emanate from the form of an antiquated idol? Yet, the New Covenant Scriptures make it plain that covetousness is idolatry. And we're pretty content bowing down to that one, aren't we? Our unquenchable thirst to get for ourselves is a clear indication, I am not satisfied with God and his righteousness. We are forbidden to make such images, such graven images, because they are a worthless idol. They set up in the hearts of men a false idea of the God of the universe But this is what we do. We want a hand in the design of our God. We want a God that's going to function according to our expectations and demands. We are happy to construct idols that meet our goals and our interests. That's what we do by nature. Calvin says that we have an idol factory in our heart, but we're worse than that even. We scheme and we plan and we make designer gods for ourselves. And then when we've succeeded, we say to ourselves... Well, when somebody says, praise the Lord, we say yes. And in our hearts, we also say, but you know, it's that great career. Also, my really wise planning helped quite a bit. And, you know, all those good reviews and um, really sleepless nights, my foresight. Yeah, that's right. God and me. My friends, this is the breaking of the second commandment. When we elevate our idols to sit with the God of heaven Dear friends, our idols cannot speak. They are dead. They are dumb. They are helpless. But the God of the universe is really in his holy temple. He speaks. He lives. And he ought to be worshipped in silence. So to summarize very quickly here, everything Babylon is doing Thinking it's going to endure is really empty. It's ultimately injurious to themselves. And Babylon's covetous consumption and boastful self-confidence are really the very opposite of faith because faith never rests in the creation. Faith is not what I can get for myself, comforting myself with my strength or the people that I know or what I might end up with tomorrow. My only comfort in life and in death, faith says, is in the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith rests upon his cross, the weakness and foolishness of God. 
And so secondly, and very briefly, I want you to see how God's judgment of our sins in Christ restores the rule of his righteousness. We deserve the same woes, this sort of fake and mocking funeral over ourselves for our sins because we are those who, by nature, cling to our own righteousness and strength. But, as the hymn rightly says, when we survey the wondrous cross, then my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. When we hear these judgments of God, dear believers, what you are witnessing is the judgment that Christ himself endured for you, the punishment and hell that he took, the robbery of stealing his possessions and glory, our struggle to protect ourselves, coveting safety for ourselves without leaning on the living God, the vanity of building for ourselves, which is really ultimately building a kingdom that is not the kingdom of God, our drunkenness with the love of the world and the mockery even of other people that deserves the shame of God, our idolatry exchanging the truth of God for a lie rather than leaning upon the Savior, these things Christ has borne the weight of. The just shall live by faith in him. Isn't this really good news? Can you imagine a world where injustice prevails and nobody does anything about it? God is not going to rule the world that way. He insists that his son, who is Lord of all, bring all things to their proper end. And so we can rejoice that Christ receiving the judgment of our sins really is God revealing through us and in us the knowledge, the true knowledge of his glory, that Jesus has borne our punishment tells the fame and the greatness of our Savior. And God's righteous judgment of our sins in Christ also shows that he is really alive and he is to be worshipped. He's in his temple and we ought to bow before him. We are really, in one sense, called not to be like Babylon. There's a pretty clear lesson here. Don't be like Babylon. Remember the mother speaking to her child in arms. Woe to Babylon. Don't be like Babylon, trusting yourself. Worship the living God who gives to you his son. Yes, weep for your sins, but rejoice that you have such a savior. Six Semper Tyrannus. Thus be it ever to tyrants. Thus be it ever to our pride and unbelief. May God bring it down and exalt the name of Jesus Christ over every other name. Let's pray together. O living and true God, we adore and worship you for your judgments in all the earth. You are righteous and holy. And we praise you that Jesus has borne in his own body what we deserve to have inflicted upon us. He has borne our transgressions. How we thank you. He has taken our place. How we thank you. He has risen up in glory. How we thank you. He is coming again to judge. Even now, may we live according to your righteous and gracious and wise judgments. May we fear the Lord and depart from evil. May we adore you, our God, 
for all that you have given to us in the Lord Jesus, our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.